So. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Nope. Okay. I win. Do you now? I do. Do you really? I got the last word. You might you might, you might consider it a victory, but I, I think it's a hollow victory. Is it a, a Pyrrhic victory? I don't know. Pyrrhic victories seem like they would require a lot of effort on my part. And <laughs> I'm not sure I'm prepared to go there. Yes, they do. Just As it's 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> right. The best time to record a podcast about the creepy, weird, The best time to record a horror podcast, yes. Welcome to the Halloween edition of Weird Sequence, Season 1, Sequence 10. Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Be aware spoilers and trigger warnings for the following. Body horror, mind control, minor violence, and relentless comparisons to the book Geek Love. And I've been doing woodwork all day, so I can't feel my arms. Oh, nice. So that's, it's, it's, it's good that we're not relying on those for this, really. You don't have a, uh, a bellows-powered microphone that you have to pump while you're recording? <laughs> no. So. I have this, the same cheap-ass toner microphone that you have. Uh, it, you know, it gets the job done. <laughs> it does get the job done. Although I'm really thinking about giving a, my SM58 another go. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to the show. We're your hosts. I'm Phil Allegheri. And Damien Haster. And this week we are covering Something Wicked This Way Comes uh, by Ray Bradbury. What did you think? Um, For our second carnival-themed horror story. Yeah, this uh, this carnival was a lot different than the carnivals in Geek Love. Um, in some ways more disturbing and in a lot of other ways a lot less disturbing. It's a different kind of disturbing. Yeah, for sure. The um, the uh, the problem with Geek Love is it, it's it's a very believable, awful reality that they've built for themselves there. Um, the, at least with something wicked this way comes, it's shockingly supernatural, which is a nice, refreshing uh, breath of air. Right, which is uh, a strange sentence to say. <laughs> yes. For example, there is no. No incest, and the brother of the main character has not started a cult. Right. It's it's an old-fashioned story about boys getting into hijinks. Right. And and middle-aged men joining in those hijinks once the cult has been revealed and and the research has been done, and then the, the confrontation has to be made. So a more uh, a more accessible, more acceptable level of small children getting into supernatural horror carnivals as opposed to i may have a child with my brother who has also started a cult level of carnivals right um which i am a a okay with <laughs> right geek love was great but uh yeah it's a it's a great book but it is relentlessly horrid yes um i will i will say though because i didn't i didn't actually read this book i i listened to it on on uh, audible oh nice um, I did kind of have a problem listening to this, mm. in that the uh, the guy that got to voice it kind of made me think of the guy that voices uh, the the old gods of Appalachia. Which, if you haven't checked that wow. out, you should go check that out. I love that podcast, and I love that guy's voice. Yeah, well, it works for the old gods of Appalachia. Right. For this story, it was way too slow. Yeah. And I was I was about ready to jump off a building about halfway through, <laughs> which <laughs> is just, which is just, is horrific. It was an autumn day, like many other autumn days. Anywhere that could be in Wisconsin. No, no, God, no! I had to listen to it like double speed. Oh my! Yeah, something wicked this way comes. Read by Alvin the Chipmunk. <laughs> Oh my god! Now um, available as a Patreon bonus, right? You know, and that's that's unfortunate because one of my favorite parts about this book was the way that Ray Bradbury uses language. Like some of the stuff that he writes is just gorgeous writing 
whatever genre this is, you know. And now, don't get don't get me wrong. Once I sped it up, um, yes, it, it is a fantastically um, well detailed, well fleshed out world. It is you know well realized. It flows very well. It is it is incredibly well written. But my god, I had to listen to it at double speed. <laughs> yeah, I I've never done that. I've never. I mean, you you get you get the full gamut here from you know, discussions about dew on the grass on an autumn day, all the way through to, um, you know, the the father's kind of self-doubts because he's so such an old parent compared mm-hmm. to a lot of people he knows. And his wife. All the way through to, you know, the tattoos on the back of people's hands. Mm-hmm. It, it's all very, uh, very vivid, very descriptive. Yeah, if I could read, I have there, I have a paragraph in front of me that I that I marked in my notes as being particularly great. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it says, "At dawn, a juggernaut of thunder wheeled over the stony heavens in the spark-throwing tumult. Rain fell softly on the town cupolas, chuckled from rain sprouts, and spoke in strange subterranean tongues beneath the windows where Jim and Will knew fitful dreams." slipping out of one, trying another for size, but finding it all cut from the same dark, moldered cloth. That's just really well-written explanation of, like, what dawn feels like when it's rainy. Like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of simile and metaphor in there and and the the rain itself is like is like uh, an animate object that has will and personality and Mm-hmm. And and the, the 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 two boys who, who form the, the sort of the main the two main uh, protagonists in the story, they behave like boys. They are, you know, little boys in the fifties, about twelve years old, getting into trouble. It's it's all perfectly believable. Yep, they run. They run everywhere. Yep, they run everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's all good right up to the point that the. <laughs> The carnival rolls into town. Which is pretty um, near the beginning of the book, so... <laughs> yes. So, did you want to summarize this, or...? I can summarize it, yeah. So, this this book starts with, uh, with a... A weather vane or lightning rod salesman coming by the protagonist's homes. And um, this was a part that I was a little bit confused about, about what the significance of this weather vane was, because it was like a... A weird Egyptian weather vane, and um, but the the that just kind of introduces the setting and and everything. I think isn't there, are they in Kansas or something like that? Some some Midwestern place. Um, uh, Illinois, I think. Illinois, that's right. And the, the, the town is Greentown, um, which is loosely based on on Bradbury's hometown. Um, I don't know if they specifically say what state it is, but I, th- I think it's implied it's like Illinois kind of Midwest. Yeah, it's kind like of. it's very like very like um, all American Midwest town, um, and so it is disgustingly all American. Yes, uh, and small town as well, which is a, a an, an extra layer of Americanness there. <laughs> um, so this carnival comes to town, and um, it. Uh, these two boys are kind of involved with the carnival from the time it arrives or even before it arrives. Um, the, they go out when they hear the train coming in, they go out and watch the carnival get set up, which is um, like a, it, it's set up in a weird supernatural way. Well, I, th- I think they, they, if I remember correctly, didn't it come in at night? Yes, a night train. It seemed to kind of set itself up like there were figures that were carrying things around, but it was all very kind of supernatural, um, just in a setup. But very quickly after the carnival opens, um, weird things start to happen with the with the the boys. They they feel a strange sense of like unease around the the, the hall of mirrors, and. There's a there's a carousel that does weird things as well, and um, they they <laughs> sorry sorry ahead. the uh, the carousel that does weird things 
Yeah, that's that's by a, weird weird things you mean manipulates time and space. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they they get into this. They get chased by I believe it's Kugrin Dark's uh, carnival. Yes. And they get chased by. Do they get chased by that point? Or are they chasing? I think you know I, th- I, I think they're just exploring, and then they they meet their teacher, Miss Foley, mm-hmm. in the carnival, who uh, has her nephew with her, which they didn't know that she had a nephew. Um, mm-hmm. Something there's something weird about the nephew. Um, Apart from the fact he suddenly disappeared, appeared. Sorry. Right. Um. So the boys start kind of meddling in things because they feel like something is off and you know throughout this whole story it it struck me over and over again that like this is a great like exploration of what it's like to be a to be afraid as a kid like um well this is this is a great exploration of what it is to be a kid right because really there's no point when these these two children are running around that you think that they aren't behaving like 12 year olds right yeah they they are getting into things they are causing trouble they are wishing they were bigger and tougher it's yeah perfect 12 year old material they have they have substitution cuss words uh that they use instead of using the the adult cuss words so so mrs foley is miss foley is kind of the first kind of uh weird thing that happens well they 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 start to basically investigate the the nephew right and the nephew, I, I think it turns out pretty quickly, is somehow connected to the carnival. Yeah, his eyes aren't right. Like, his, right. his eyes look older than he is. They chase him back to the, the carnival, and they, they realize it's it's Mr. Cougar on the... It's actually Mr. Cougar. And what he's doing is he's using the carousel to age himself forwards and backwards. Right. But something happens. One of them, one of them hits the control panel or something. Yeah, they they tinker with the controls and age him hundreds of years, radically yeah. and, and crazily. Um, you know, far beyond what he should be. They they age him to the point where he's he's barely alive. Like yeah, he's, he's like a mummified. He's basically a mummy. In the process, break the carousel and have to leave. Yeah, they freak out. They leave. They call the cops, which is a reasonable thing to do. And uh, by the time the police and paramedics get there. The Mr. Kruger is gone, and Mr. Dark comes out to meet them and says, Oh, these boys have just fallen in for one of our sideshow things. Why don't you come in and see, you know, we'll oh, show yes, you what's they, going they, on. They, they bring out Mr. Electrico, right. which is the, the uh, Mr. Well, it's uh, they bring out Mr. Electrico, which is Mr. Kruger now wired to a car battery or similar to mm-hmm. run electricity through him to keep him alive. Yeah, and he has <laughs> he he comes to life and and uh, like has a good laugh and is like ha ha you kids you know whatever. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the kids kind of get pushed off, but from that point onwards, the the carnival and sort of these associated carnival workers, which again kind of like Geek Love, they've gone for this theme of you know people with um, actual like physical deformities. Um, start to actively hunt the boys right the 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 feeling in the carnival goes from just kind of like an uneasy like oh don't go in the mirror maze to mm-hmm. like actively um malevolent yeah and i mean as you go through the book it, it becomes it becomes less and less subtle they're not um they're not just saying like oh hey you know have, have you seen Jim and Will, he he, you know, it, it's just like, oh, we have prizes for them. They yes. should totally come here. Yes, they have the prizes, free have ride tickets. Yes. Um, um, there's a witch that's hunting them in a balloon. Yeah, that part was really. They creepy. they have to destroy her balloon with a bow and arrow because, of course, there's a dust witch trying to chase them. Down. And then and then they have this crazy dream where the balloon has a funeral and it has like a forty foot coffin. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. It was just kind of a little out of left field. It was really creepy to me because until they open the coffin, you don't know what's in there, and you just know that it's like a forty foot long coffin. But it's still as narrow as a regular coffin should be. So it's. Yeah. Uh, but then, so so after the the incident with the witch, um, things become even more like malevolent with the carnival, 
and right. the and th- this is this is where the story changes up a little bit because um, the boys the boys go on the run yeah and this is the point where um, Will's, dad Will's gets father gets drawn into the story mm-hmm. so up to this point he's just sort of appeared a couple of times and you know you get these kind of um, these sort of ref- reflective kind of thoughts and conversations about you know well he's just very old. Yeah. Because he's too old to have kids, you know, he should have done more with his life. He's the janitor at the library. Very kind of like, um, not exactly downtrodden, but sort of world-weary, I suppose. Yeah, and there there, there are hints of, of um, issues at home. Like, his dad is always going to the library at weird hours to just kind of get away. And mm-hmm. um, Will's dad is kind of... Um, full of uh like regret and like lost opportunity mm-hmm. and but he gets drawn in at this parade um which is a really uh kind of intense scene there's a confrontation between will's father and mr dark where mm-hmm. he mr dark doesn't yet know the kids names and uh will's dad doesn't give him the names but then he gives him gives his own name which is odd but you know, like, well, it's 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 even more sinister than that because you know, Mister Dark comes up to to Charles Holloway and goes, "Well, hey, have you seen these boys? Like, well, what do they look like? Oh, exactly like this." And he has them tattooed on his hands. Oh yeah. <laughs> the conversation doesn't really go uphill from that point. No. Um. That was. I mean. Yeah. In today's world, that would be like, okay, uh, let me get back to you in a minute. I'm just going to go over here and call Child Protective Services and the police yes. and get you a restraining order. I'm, right I'm now, just like. going to get a restraining order. Right. <laughs> and he's he's sort of like playing it off like, oh, you know, we did it because we've got a big prize for them. They've won a raffle, you know. Right, they as you do. In. We're going to give them a great tour of the, the whole what, what what carnival owner wouldn't have, have uh, boys with free tickets tattooed on his palms, you know? Right. Yeah. So the most the most painful place to get a tattoo, as I understand it. Yeah, I've never heard that, but that doesn't surprise me. Lots of nerve endings there. Um, um, I think. Okay, complete digression, but I think I was watching an episode of Inked, or one of those kind of shows. Uh huh. And they were talking about because they have to like sit down and, and draw a design, and then they have to sit down and um, design draw the design, and they get they get points for how it looks and then how they actually yeah, like actually implemented it and um there's one bit where two of the tattoo artists are talking and the one guy's like oh yeah this is like the most painful place to get tattooed and the guy's like i don't know man i can think of places that might hurt more <laughs> you know kind of nudge nudge wink wink and yeah. the guy's like oh no i have my scrotum tattooed i cried when they did this getting my palms done hurt more mm. i can imagine <laughs> it's like i mean I, I want neither of this done. It would also hurt for a long time afterwards, I bet. It, it, it's also kind of a very fleeting tattoo, if one understand, because the, the skin on your hands regenerates so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of by necessity. So um, they don't last terribly long. You know, people talk about getting a tattoo touched up every 10 years. On mm-hmm. your hands, it can be, you know, every three years. Yeah. Which, that just sounds like awful hell to me. Right. And a lot of money. Um, which, you know, when you have photorealistic pictures of two boys' faces on your palms. It's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. So the parade is is the point where, where Charles Holloway gets like actively involved. He tells the kids to come to the library after dinner. And they spend the day kind of hiding in random places around town. And then they make their way to the library and... Um, dad has set up like a, a bunch of books he's been researching all day and mm-hmm. he's got the lowdown on this carnival and it, it seems that the carnival comes through town about every 80 years and a certain number of people just kind of mysteriously vanish mm-hmm. um and then the carnival pecks up and and goes but also the the carnival is always associated with uh, mr dark and mr kroger um so the, these same people have been coming every 80 years for, you know, who knows how long. The implication, I think, I think um, Charles Holloway, you know, like he, he suspects that these are people that have been doing the same thing, like 
they were in Roman times and they were in prehistory doing something. They feed off of the misery of other people. Um, so. Oh, yeah. He, he, he theorizes that they may have just always been. Yeah. And so while they're while they're having their little powwow um, to find out what they can about the, the carnival, Mr. Dark and his cronies come and uh, dad tells the kids to beat it and hide. And there's a confrontation, another confrontation between Mr. Holloway and Mr. Dark, which doesn't go well for Mr. Holloway. Um, uh, doesn't he just destroy his hand? Yes. And his pride as well. He's, Mr. Dark is pretty uh, unkind. <laughs> um, I mean, in general, you could describe Mr. Dark, Mr. Dark as unkind. Right, but there's there's the one part where he's like he's saying like if you you know tell me where the kids are and I'll I'll give you forty years of your life back or and then he starts like counting down like every five seconds I'm going to take years off and uh, yeah. it's just very like like shoving it in his face and stuff yeah well then he he leaves him in the heap as well and then uh i think if i remember correctly um the the dust witch kind of comes in tries to stop charles holloway's heart and then mesmerizes the boys and drags them off to the carnival well the mr dark gets the boys the witch goes to, to stop mr holloway's heart and he defeats her by kind of um, glimpsing for a moment into the um, into H.P. Lovecraft's uh, great horror of the the just immensely hilarious joke that is existence, <laughs> um, <laughs> and he actually laughs, and that laughter damages the witch, and she has to run away. Yes. <clears throat> um, so then. The boys have been hypnotized and they're in another parade going to the carnival and um, the witch is following the parade wounded and Mr. Holloway is following the witch wounded. Mm -hmm. And then we move into the climax where Mr. Dark is uh, entertaining the last customers for the night and the witch shows up and he's unhappy because she didn't stop Mr. Holloway's heart. And so he makes her... Um, excuse me. He makes her perform the catch the bullet in your teeth trick. Oh, which it's it's worth pointing out as well. At this point, when the witch sees Charles Holloway, she is terrified of him. Yes, it, it's no longer sort of you know. At this point, she's been walking around just whispering, cursing mm-hmm. things, very much like malevolent kind of spirit, kind of walking yes. through the world. And suddenly, it's just like, oh yeah, no, I gotta. <laughs> Yeah, she <laughs> gotta, she actually she actually I gotta I gotta go do the thing. She so actually gotta, calls know. out to the audience for help. Please, someone save me, mercy. And yes. Mr. Holloway um, kind of knows how the trick works, and he he somehow like draws a, a smile, his smile onto the fake bullet, mm-hmm. and then kills the witch with the magic of his smile, I guess, but. Um, it's, it's, well, that's, I, I think the, the implication there is that they can't tolerate anything good. Right. So anything good or bright or happy or positive, and they, they start to run shrieking. Right. Well, he tells Mr. Dark, I'm drawing the crescent moon on this bullet to mark it so that you know that, you know, which bullet was which. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and, but secretly it's not the crescent moon, it's his smile of and his laughter and he he whispers that knowing that mr dark and the witch can both read his lips or hear his whisper and so she starts like squirming and then he pulls the trigger and and she just like goes flying off the stage <laughs> so he he does the witch in and then we move to the final confrontation um because Will had been freed by his father's kind of force of will to help him yeah. fire the gun, but Jim was still hypnotized. And so yeah. with the death of the witch, that hypnotism was broken, and Jim um, went to go to the carousel. And and this is something that like, has been a theme throughout the book, is like 
the boys feel they have different attitudes about all this stuff. Will kind of has this instinctive, like, none of this is very good, and Jim well, is they're, kind they're, of... Well, they're opposed, you know. Jim is more the kind of daredevil kind of, like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna just go in there and give him a piece of my mind, and Will is much more like, yeah, let's let's not do that and think about this for a minute. Right. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, they're they're born, was it two minutes apart? One minute either side of midnight? Yeah, something On the like same that. day. So one one's birthday is the day before, oh, well, October 30th, the other one's is October 31st. Mm-hmm. They are very tightly linked um, for non-kind of sibling characters. Yeah. Mr. Holloway and, and Will go to find Jim, and while they're well, Will is trying to save Jim from the the carousel, which he is riding with one arm. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I imagine it kind of like a, you know, hanging on with one arm and his feet are flying backwards and like a cartoon. I, I always got the impression he was sort of hanging on for dear life. Yeah. Um, which is a fantastic image for like <laughs> a little carousel with all the horses bobbing up and down. Right. You, know, you always think of it as very like sedate and it's just like, oh, this guy's holding on for grim death. Yeah, no, I think this carnival has two speeds. It's either like Mach 3 or nothing. I think this whole ca- carnival is an OSHA violation. Oh, right? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, if Geek Love can get away with it, why not? <laughs> yeah. So Will finally saves Jim by actually jumping out and grabbing onto jim like bodily Mm. and kind of yanking him off of the carousel and while that's happening this this little kid comes running up asking for help because mr dark is after him and mr holloway kind of sees through the disguise and sees that this little kid is mr dark and uh, there's the the final kind of confrontation scene mr holloway like picks up mr dark as a kid and kind of acts like he's giving him a bear hug and he he whispers like all of the energy that people have given you i take it back and he Mm -hmm. he like smiles at him and that like it like extinguishes mr dark like a candle yeah um and then yeah he 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 literally kind of hugs him to death yeah and um and then the, they break the carousel and then they all go running home. Mm-hmm. And that's oh, it. and at some point in that, uh, the the decrepit Mister Cougar gets dropped and he turns into so much powder. Yes, and all the all the circus freaks go uh, running off in random directions. And mm-hmm. uh, once Mister Dark dies, they're not bound to him, and they just go running off. Mm-hmm. Which it is worth pointing out that at this point, at least two of the circus uh, freaks um one is made from miss foley who is now a young blind girl mm-hmm. and one is the lightning rod salesman from the start of the book who's now an insane dwarf who has cameras in his eyes yes and maybe so, maybe is like clockwork i don't know it was yes yeah. it's yes there's a whole body horror thing going on there that they barely touch on but it's just like what is happening yeah um so yes oh my goodness so where do we start as soon as we we did this in, in comparison to to geek love which is a incredibly dense what 400 page novel yeah this is a much simpler much straightforward book it's like half the length it has a much simpler flow it has much simpler themes but they are very well executed yes you know, there's, there's no misunderstanding at any point about what a person is doing. There's no, there's never really a situation where anybody's motivation is not obvious. Right. Or, um, the the good guys, know, the good guys are clearly good guys. The bad guys are clearly bad guys. Um, right. Yeah. Well, like you know, the the kids are clearly kids getting into hijinks. Right. You know, uh, Charles Holloway is clearly. Somewhat, uh, somewhat broken down, but he he's still a good guy. He just, you know, doesn't know what to do with himself. Right. Cougar and Dark are clearly, clearly something evil and supernatural and um, don't want to do anything good or nice to anybody. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Everything is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the... Um... One of the contrasts between Geek Love and this, and in terms of, like, the carnival, is, like, both carnivals kind of have, like, a, a darkness about them. Like, I never got the sense in Geek Love that, like, if I picture 
the carnival at Geek Love in my head, it's kind of, um, it's not like a great place to be, but it's okay. Well, it, it kind of feels like the county fair. You right. Know? There's, there's probably too many food vans. There's people running like hokey games that are probably like a bit beat up. There's probably some, some tents with shows going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a carnival. You, you've seen a modern carnival. This one is, this one gives a much stronger vibe of being, you know, the kind of thing that Tim Burton would write. Right. <laughs> and, and I found myself like, especially like during the parade, the parade has such like the parade where they're, where, where the boys are hiding under the cigar mm-hmm. shop. There's such In a. In the sewer. Right. The, there's such a, a, a feeling of like ominous malevolence with this parade that i found myself wondering like how is anybody like watching this and having a good time like you know but but we're you know we're seeing this story through kind of i mean it's in third person but we're seeing it kind of through the eyes of the boys and correct you know they've decided but, but you, but you are right um you know you, you've got dark walking around you've got uh is it the tattooed man and the the insane dwarf well he's the the, the the skeleton man and the insane dwarf and the yeah yeah and, and they they are they are scaring children walking around right and yet everybody's cheering and having a good time they're watching all these floats go by and it's, which i will say i never got a really good idea of how big the carnival was mm-hmm. it's like okay well it showed up on a train and they have a a big top and they can have enough people to run a carnival, but I, I don't know that they ever really talk about more than, what six people who operate out of one tent. Yeah, and I, I think I think that was done purposely because I think there is a very distinct, like supernatural, element with this carnival, and and it doesn't like you know when you think about it logistically, it doesn't seem to work, and and I don't think it's supposed to like. Well, it, it's not not even a case of it, it doesn't logistically work. It's just the scale of it. Right. I, I don't know if it comes across correctly to me, at least. Yeah. Um. I I don't. You know, Cougar and Dark have how many people here? It, it sort of implies maybe even hundreds of people working for them, but really they're only ever running around with six people. Right. And really, you know, to say them, it, it's it's Mister Dark. Mm-hmm. You know, Cougar is spends most of the the, the story in, in a sideshow in a chair, pretending he's being electrocuted. Right, and before that, he was like a twelve year old imposter. Right, and and you know, there the, I was thinking about um, like Miss Foley, kind of took Mister Cougar's bait, like hook, line, and sinker, to the point where like there had to be some magic or curse or the the dust witch was involved somehow because there's a point after after mr cougar goes away chasing the boys and she feels like the boys have stole has stolen her jewelry and she goes to the police Mm -hmm. there's a there's a scene where she's kind of thinking to herself and like rationalizing it and she's like why would those boys steal my jewelry it doesn't make any sense but then again who is my nephew like what's up with that i don't remember like this kid being around before a couple of days ago and yeah like and and the implication is when they they go after people um they do it with a very you know a very kind of calculated um almost demonic kind of seduction right so you know um i, I think the implication with miss foley is she kind of always wanted to settle down and have a family and never did mm-hmm so suddenly she's got this nephew that's like, hey, you know, let's hang out. This is cool, right? Yeah. Um, it overrides people's, you know, typical skepticism of what's going on. Right. And I think that the, you mentioned like a, a demonic kind of thing. Uh, there were a lot of times when the way that Mr. Dark is described is very much kind of like a, a legion kind of character like he's a he's a conglomeration or a multitude of of beings that manifest in his in his tattoos the the feeling i always got with mr dark was not that he was necessarily like a 
a an amalgamation or a conglomeration of people, but he was always representing something. Right. Like he's he was even if it's some sort of prim- primal force, he is working for something or he's doing something because that's just always what he's been expected to do. Right. You know, it's not like he's hoarding gold. He's not building an army to defeat the world. He's just doing a thing because he's expected to do a thing. Right. Um, so it gives him a very strange sort of motivation, if you think about it. It does. He He's not... He's maybe not acting under his own will, but maybe he doesn't have his own will. Maybe he's just it's, a puppet. It's not, even, it's not even a question of will. It's, you know... You kind of look at Miss Foley and how completely they um, ingratiate themselves. Mm-hmm. Just one of them. How quickly they ingratiate themselves. Like, you know, out of nowhere, suddenly this nephew is living with her and, you know, she's believing him over everything else, even though she can't rationalize where he's come from or what's going on or anything. Right. But they don't really target a lot of people. It's it's always one or two people because they need new people for the, the show. Yeah. They're not... Um, They're not parasites off of everybody, just certain kinds of people. Well, it's, not, it's not even that not parasites. It's, it's sort of what is the end goal here. There's, there's no obvious end goal. It, they just are. Mm-hmm. This is what they do. This is what they will always do. This is what they always have done. And there is... You know what that, I mean? That is implied at the, at the very end of the book when one of the boys asks, like, you know, essentially, like, well, did we do it? Did we defeat them? And... And um, Will's father says, you know, yes and no. Like, we've defeated these people, but there are others and they'll be back. You know, the, it might not be in the form of a carnival, but these these kinds of creatures will come back. Right. Yeah. I, I, again, it's, it's, it's very much, you know, they are a they are a thing or an entity as opposed to, you know, oh, well, they're they're discreetly doing this thing because they have this motivation. Right. Um, actually, there's, there's one part here where the sort of Will's, Will's father, Will's father calls mountains like, you know, it basically implies or makes, tries to make an appeal to some sort of latent Christianity in him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, have you ever read the Bible? And he's like, well, I've had every page, line and word read at me, sir. So, I mean, he's not even... He's not even kind of connecting with the idea of being some sort of a demon. Right. He's something something else. Something way more basic than that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, um, one thing that I really like about this, about the way that the carnival is depicted is, um, and it's something, something that is, that I, I find myself using in my own writing when I write, when I write horrors, is mm-hmm. like having something look, um, grand and amazing on the big scale, but then, like when you look at it in detail, you see something else. Like, and it, like I think, I remember something that happened to me, like when I first moved to Florida, um, where like we went. I think my dad, my dad took me to this town. I don't even remember what town it was, but we went to this hotel, and it was like when we were out in the parking lot, like. It looked like an amazing, like, Art Deco building that it was going to be a really cool building. And as we got closer, I started to notice, like, um, you know, like, flaking patina coming off of the building. And, like, and, and this, the carnival is kind of described in that same way. Like, in one paragraph here that I have, it says, like, uh, it says... For the tents were lemon like the sun, brass like the wheat fields a few weeks ago, flags and banners bright and bluebirds snapped above the lion-covered canvas. But then in the next paragraph, when they actually enter the carnival, things are described as like, um, it says, it even says it, like instead close up the carnival was mildewed rope, moth-eaten canvas, rain-worn, sun-bleached tinsel, the slideshow paintings hung like sad albatrosses on their poles. And mm-hmm. like I and I love that contrast where like from far away something looks amazing, but then when you get close to it, it becomes kind of horrific itself because on the small scale it's rotting and festering. Yeah. And and I think it, it touches on a, a theme with this this story that comes up again and again and again, which is 
basically a warning against that sort of seduction of things you want. Right. You know, a sort of warning against wanting these things that you can't get or you can't have or you, in some cases just have to wait for. You know, if you think about all of the main characters, you know, you have one of the kids who wants to be older, um, who just has to wait, but he wants his freedom now. He he, he wants, you know, to, to, to move on from his situation he's in. You have the dad who wants, you know, a better life or to be younger, to have another shot at a better life because he feels he's he's kind of wasted what he's done. You know, you have Miss Foley who has... I don't think it's terribly well defined, but some desire for, you know, a child running around in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go through all the principal characters and there's always something, right? Yeah, there's some some need that is not fulfilled. I mean, I'm, I'm reading here, you know, even even the lightning rod salesman wanted to see the most beautiful woman in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how they dragged him in. Um, yeah. The, everybody, everything about this carnival operates on people's desires right you know as as it kind of like that's kind of how real carnivals operate like you know it's all about like like the last time that i went to a carnival well maybe not the last time but like i i went to the to the boardwalk on the jersey shore one time and um the i'm sorry well it was it was pretty nice it was before (laughs) hurricane sandy too so it wasn't like damaged Uh um but um the the hawkers that were trying to get you to come and play the games like they were they were doing everything they could to make it to make you feel like you know this is your lucky day like you're gonna you're gonna win this game and you're gonna win this giant stuffed animal that you don't need and don't have room in your car for it like Mm -hmm. you know the the whole concept of the carnival is is a concept of like opalescence and something that you don't need to do but you're going to do it anyway because it's fun well yeah and i i think i i think that's one one thing that sort of this and geek love have in common um because you're right you know a, a carnival is about presenting you with um it, it sort of plays with the idea of what it is you want or what you expect mm-hmm. um so you know in in geek love you have arturo who is giving people these these ideas about well, you know he builds a cult about well this is this is how you get a better life this is how you you feel better about the real world mm-hmm. so he's selling them this sort of desire for something different and better um in something wicked this way comes people are still going to the carnival and, and having a good time but the people they pick off and and sort of morph into these these kind of kind of creatures these, these that the kind of end up working at the carnival um they're all trapped by things that they want mm-hmm. and it's they all it's, have some, it's some sort of the same thing they're... in both books you know they're, yeah. they're drawing people in and trapping them with these these kind of desires that they have <clears throat> it, i mean again very different desires you know the, the right. people going to arturo's court are very different to the people going to um you know cougar and dark's carnival but it's the Mm -hmm. same kind of idea yeah i agree with that totally let's let's talk for a minute about um about childhood fears and and how this book um uses them okay i think i think the i mean there's a lot of a lot of ways that the book kind of encapsulates like what it is to be to be fearful as a kid Mm -hmm. um but for me, like the like, I wrote I wrote a whole paragraph in my notes about this this part about like right after the the when Mister Cougar becomes a, a mummy and um, they call the cops like the the scene with the cops and the paramedics in the in the room is like so much of what what like the idea of of childhood fear is fear is is so much about the loss of control. But for a kid who doesn't have a whole lot of control in his life anyway, you know, when it, it feels like when you call the cops and you get the paramedics involved, when you get adults involved, they're supposed to fix things, right? Because they're the adults. Right. And and in the scene where the paramedics and the cops come to see to see this Mr. Cougar who's a mummy, 
like one of the when they first roll out Mr. Cougar on the on the electric chair, like one of the paramedics kind of like looks closely and is like looking concerned because he can see like that's a corpse, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then you know they they wire him up to the electricity and he comes alive and puts on a show and and you know their adult senses tell them oh you know these kids just got duped by a sideshow and well it's it's almost a little more subtle than that as well because you know they they get framed for theft by the police you know paramedics and police come in they don't they don't resolve the situation with with cougar and dark right at the start of the book there's even the part where will's dad gets um beaten by mr dark and like they they take off running while he he's loses a fight solidly mm-hmm. you know for a child when you are surrounded by all of these um sort of immortal parents you know these godlike parents and, and and adults to suddenly be so utterly let down by everybody around you um yeah that that's terrifying that is that is childhood destroying for some yeah. people and and for me like the the thing about especially about the scene with where the cops are involved is like that whole scene with, with Mr. Electrocuto or whatever they call him. Like (laughs) that, that whole scene is so ridiculous and so like over the top that it's extra horrific for the kids because now the adults are like, you know, we don't believe this narrative that you're telling, but you as the child know that it's real. Mm-hmm. Like you, like like no, Mister Cougar, he was dead a minute ago, and now he's alive, and they're going to come and hunt us, and they're going to take us away or kill us or whatever. And the adults that are supposed to protect you don't believe you. Like that's, I mean, look at look at you know any any movie, especially a horror movie that involves a kid. That's like the ultimate horror for the kid is that like I've. I've put my neck on the line and told the adults what's going on and they don't believe me. And now right. I'm, now I have to face this thing alone. Correct. And, um, and that's really like, you know, until Mr. Holloway gets solidly involved, things look pretty bleak for, for Will. And yeah. Jim, it, it's and Jim. them like, versus whatever is happening at the carnival. Right. Um, uh, and they, they know from, from step one, that carnival is coming for them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, um, I really enjoyed uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah, um, I did too. It's a great a great book. Totally, to, like, it's the first Ray Bradbury I've ever read, I think. And uh, it shows me why he's, like, required mm-hmm. reading for a lot of people. Well, I, I think as well after, um, after the great god Pan and Geek Love, it's nice to have a story that's just very simple and straightforward. <laughs> Boy, our bar, our bar for uh, for what's weird and disturbing is pretty high because because like objectively, like this story is pretty, it's pretty creepy and disturbing. But it it is very creepy and it it does have some moments that are very tense and very dramatic. Um, mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of moments in it that are. Um, full out horrifying nobody's locking people's limbs off nobody's implying horrible things are happening in the woods with small children it's it's just this monster and he's waiting for the scooby-doo gang to show up and figure out whose mask is under the mask and i think for me honestly the the part that i would classify as the scariest part of the story is is when the witch is coming in the in the balloon when i read that part like it's so weird and I, I wasn't even sure like if it was a nightmare or if it really happened and and then like he tries to take action and gets the gets the bow and arrow but then it's not working and he ends up just stabbing the balloon with the arrow because it gets so close and like it was just really like that the, that feeling of being like pursued and hunted is I yeah, think the, the bit for me that was was more horrific um for for me, the the first part that was really like, oh dear, was actually the carnival when it's it's it, having the parade mm-hmm. outside the cigar shop because they're they're in the drain watching this conversation with their dad, 
Right. The dad's talking to Mr. Dark, and it's the first time you realize that, yes, no, they are actively hunting them. Yeah. They're actively hunting them, and they want them bad. <laughs> yeah, and there's also the 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 feeling that, like, the kids know that they're that that dad is in like immediate danger <laughs> and he doesn't know it like well they, they also I, I get the impression they didn't have a lot of um faith in the dad's ability to handle this right he yeah, that's true up until that point he's kind of seen as kind of a um not someone who's very capable right um but yes yeah, so next week um, or next time next- Next time, yeah. we're not doing this weekly. <laughs> uh, no, wait no, till I graduate. No, we're not. That's not happening. Um, <laughs> life, life is way too much right now. Um, no, so next time we will be uh, we we decided on the monkey's paw by W. W. Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Read up; it's classic. It it is a classic. Um, it's one of those ones that comes up in a lot of other stories and. Mm-hmm films um there's you know, there's the a great the, the three wishes kind of idea with the mm-hmm. there's um, a great adoption of it on i think the original tales from the crypt from the 1970s um there's a great adoption of it that is quite a bit different from the from the original but there's still like a moment like one of the wishes that like i have to go th- we'll, we'll talk about it when we talk about it but <laughs> It's well, it's one of my favorite I, one of my favorite like horror movie things ever. <laughs> cool, but yeah, this this has been in every other kids show, every other TV film. So this is probably a good one to look at. So next time we will read uh, the Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs, and we will see you next time. All right. Actually, I don't know if I have a copy of this. I don't want to buy books expensive if you enjoyed our podcast consider liking subscribing and maybe even recommending to a friend we'll see you soon